You're listening to the Volleyball by Design podcast. Today, we are going to bring on a special guest, one of the greatest volleyball minds in the world, and we're going to tackle a ton of volleyball concepts. So if you're interested in getting a ton of value and learning a lot, stay tuned. Hi, I'm Coach Brian Singh, and after 11 years coaching competitive volleyball and as a head coach of a college team, I've become obsessed with helping athletes and coaches improve their knowledge and skills of the game by teaching them how to train efficiently and effectively to ultimately reach their volleyball goals. I've created the Volleyball by Design podcast to give you simple, actionable, step-by-step strategies so you can get clarity and apply what you learn right away. This is the Volleyball by Design podcast. Hey, what's up, ladies and gentlemen? Thanks so much for tuning in to episode eight of the Volleyball by Design podcast. We have a special episode for you today. Uh, But first, if you're new to the podcast, welcome. And if you are a regular listener, thanks again for for tuning in. Um, I thank you all for taking the time out of your day to join us and talk volleyball. And I do want to give you guys a heads up that the audio does break in and out a few times um, over the course of the episode, but um, our guest was on vacation, so we're lucky enough that he took the time to even be on the show. Uh, So just want to give you a little heads up about that audio going in and out. So I have a special guest for you. We are going to bring on the head coach of the UCLA men's volleyball team. He's also the head coach of the U.S. men's national team. It is my privilege and honor to welcome to the show, Coach John Spira. Coach, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, how are you? Good, Brian. Thanks for having me on. Oh, I can't. I'm so excited. So you want to give us a little bit about your background? I, that was a really bad job of introducing you, by the way. I apologize, but no, no, uh, you can do a better job than I can. Uh, sure. I, I grew up in a, a smaller city in the Los Angeles suburbs called Arcadia. Uh, I just happened to be in a, setting up a really outstanding volleyball coach. And a couple older brothers of some good friends of mine had started playing volleyball for him. And uh, I was a tall guy playing just about everything, uh, pr- predominantly basketball, but uh, I was playing football and baseball and uh, doing a lot of different things and, and just really understood at a pretty young age after I played um, my first year of tackle football um, that that wasn't going to be my thing, that I was going to get broken yeah. into. And- <laughs> Kind of thinking is okay. As I made the transition from junior high to high school, I wanted to go from three sports to two, and what would those be? Mm-hmm. And uh, I decided it would be basketball. And then I was getting bored with baseball. Football wasn't it. And I was thinking, gosh, I think I'm going to try this volleyball thing. Which at that point, I'd only and, and so I was 16 at the time, and I'd only like played some random terrible physical education class volleyball. I'd never been on a. I'd never been taught anything about it. And um, one of my good buddies, Robert Chai, who was the best man at my wedding, <laughs> nice, and uh, has been our technical director with me since I got my head job at Irvine years ago. His older brother had started playing volleyball for, for Coach Chuck Freeberg at Arcadia High. And uh, so Rob was like, hey, there's this thing you, you play the volleyball, it's called Pepper. Let's go out in the front yard and play a little Pepper. And that's literally where I started really uh, touching the ball for the first time. And uh, Chuck took me under his wing and played for him for three years and had some great success and uh, learned a ton from him. Went to UCLA and, and played at UCLA for five years, kind of, kind of did a little bit of everything. I redshirted, I 
started early on in my career, then lost my job, worked my way down the depth chart, worked my way back up the depth chart. And so I kind of have a, a pretty broad understanding of the experience of our student athletes. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, was thinking about going into to medicine. I, I majored in uh, microbiology and molecular genetics at UCLA and a uh, great major really focused in deeply interested in the sciences. Mm -hmm. uh, come from a family of a lot of physicians and um, even when I was like in eighth and ninth grade, my, my cousin, David Craig, who's a really well-known cancer researcher, he was, he was general surgeon oncologist at UC Davis. I was going into heart surgery and cancer surgery and stuff in the eighth and ninth grade. Like I was really into it. And, um, but I, I started, I was working in the hospital in LA as a year after graduating and Coach Skates, obviously the other major influence besides Chuck Freeberg, mm -hmm. who introduced mm -hmm. me to the game. And my club coach in high school, Jim Strickland, who taught me a lot, uh, a lot about the game as well. He probably took it to the next step. He had his background. He had some of the interesting things to teach me along the way. And then, mm -hmm. then there's skates. And Al, of course, is uh, my main mentor as a coach and, and friend. And, uh, and Al was really, really at his time, particularly statistics. I don't think people really understand how detailed he was able to go statistically before computers made that available to the general public of coaching. Right. And, and so when he, during those days, this is 95, 96 and the computer was just starting to come up, come in. But what he had, it was like four or five people that were taking hand steps. So, yeah, hey, you're right. so I graduated with a group of guys that wanted to do some, some really, really great things. Eric Sullivan, libero over the Olympics in 2004 now had, yeah. has had a yeah. great coaching career. He's been at Texas for a long time. Uh, Kevin Wong, Obviously, went to the Olympics on the beach, um, and now is running Spike and Serve in Hawaii. Has just continued to have an influence in the game, and then Jeff Nygaard, obviously the coach at SC, mm -hmm. multi Olympian. So that those are all my recruiting class guys, and uh, wow. so we all graduated. All those guys kept playing and scattered. I was a six five middle with no national team hope, and at that time in the mid nineties, it was a little harder for a mid range non national team player to go play overseas. It's just a crash shoot. And I didn't, yeah. have any, I didn't have any money. I couldn't pay for my way over there. Right. And so I just uh, start. I was just, I kept working in the hospital and skates asked me to do stats and that was it. I got the coaching bug. I enjoyed being on the bench, interacting with right. my friends. I'd just been out of school a year. So right. you know, after during a timeout, Paul Nihipali or Tom Stilwell or, or Danny Farmer, they, all these guys would come over and ask me my opinion on, you know, what, what I saw. And I just, I love the interaction that going on, them solving that problem, um, and then coming back. And so, um, right, right. yeah, I, I just loved it. And then uh, about a year later, I went in and said, you know, Coach, I'm, I'm thinking I'm not going to go to medical school. I'm thinking about coaching. <laughs> and uh, he laughed at me first. He, he goes, gosh, I sure hope you're thinking about coaching women. And I go, oh, I hadn't really thought about it. He goes, well, there's just so many more opportunities on the women's side to coach. Mm -hmm. um, but I am coaching the World University Games team this summer. Doug Beal, who was the head coach of the, the national team at the time, just called last week, asked me if I want to coach the WUG team. He goes, I'd rather not have any other assistants besides our own because I don't really want to share what we're doing at UCLA. Yeah. And um, I said, sure, I'll do it. So my first job with USA was immediately that summer in, in 1997, we went, to the, went to the World University Games. Mm -hmm. At that time, USAV didn't have any budget and so they were looking for young 
uh, single assist, assistant coaches who didn't care if they went away for seven or eight weeks and didn't get paid. All the other coaches who've been around, they're all doing camps and, you know, paying their mortgage. And right. so I, once I did a good job of that, I just was in the system. So 1998, I did the youth national team, 99, I did the WUGS again and the Pan Am games. In 2000, I actually went to the Olympics to watch Wong. I was helping Wong a little bit on the beach, just a little mm -hmm. bit. And then um, Nygaard was playing and uh, he didn't, his parents weren't going to go to, to Sydney. So he hooked me up with tickets to everything. So I saw a bunch of all the men's matches, nice the women's matches. A, a bunch of beach matches. And then I bought a bunch of tickets to baseball and tennis and yeah. boxing. I just went around Sydney. Yeah. Then in 2001, I was back. And so I was, I, I can't even keep track, Brian. It was youth and junior national teams all the way. Hugh McCutcheon was the head coach one year when I was the assistant. Mm -hmm. We both mm -hmm. became friends as a result of that. Um, and then I get the job at Irvine in 2002. In, and so I'm coaching there for a, a few years. And then Hugh McCutcheon, gets the team moved to Anaheim. So now it's in the backyard and asked me if I want to be the assistant. So that's how I got my first national team experience. Mm -hmm. And then I just stayed with the national team. And uh, so I calculated it out last year. I've been with, the U with a U.S. team 19 of the last 21 summers. Wow. So I never did the camp thing. I just did the USA thing. And uh, it's amazing. probably not the best thing for my finances. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, it, it has been a great thing for the development of my coaching, and obviously I love it. And now I have the honor of, of being the, the head guy for the national team. And that, so that's how I got there. Wow. That's incredible. Like it's, a, it's, a, it's really cool to reflect on that journey because uh, even like listening to that story, I, I tend to reflect on my small journey, and it's just perseverance. You know, you keep working at it and, and passion. Like I got from what you were just describing is the passion of the sport um, and that somewhat drove you to continue to pursue it further and further and further. And I, I, I mean, knowing you, I, I can, when I, when I go in your gym, I, I don't know how you were 20 years ago, but the passion that you coach with, mm. it seems like it's just as much as it was 20 years ago, if not more. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's really impressive to see. Well, I, I love the gym. And I think most coaches that have been doing this for a while, I mean, we all love to compete. And I, I, I remember, maybe I love it more now as I've gotten a little bit older. I remember reading Coach Wooden and how much he just loved the gym and how he yeah. preferred that over competing. And I'm like, gosh, I actually really like to compete. Yeah. But I do, I think over the years, just uh, the development of practice plan design, how to best do that, how to me, even after doing this 18 years as a coach, that's still a nut to be cracked, you know, like what yeah. is the perfect practice plan design and how do you utilize that to teach? I still am fascinated by how to make that more efficient. Um, oh, we're going to talk about that later on in this. That's a good yeah. conversation. Yeah, no, it's a, I, for sure. It'd be great. Uh, uh, so I think the other thing you should take from my introduction, Brian, is, is, mm -hmm. is just luck. You know, I think <laughs> um, uh, I could have been born right from the beginning of my story, right? I could have been born. No joke, a half mile. I could have lived a half mile the other direction and in Pasadena instead of Arcade. Pasadena didn't have high school level. Yeah, yeah. Um, I could have uh, not had access to a volleyball club. My volleyball club was completely paid for because the son of our setter was uh, the son of a super philanthropic and man of means. Mm -hmm. who decided, hey, there's nothing in the San Gabriel Valley, and the only way we're going to put together a team because parents can't afford it is I'm going to pay for it. Wow. And my parents didn't have much money, mm -hmm. and they certainly knew zero about volleyball, mm -hmm. <laughs> maybe 1% about volleyball and 0% about club sports.
Right. If I had shown up and said, mom and dad, I want to play this sport called volleyball. It's going to cost you $3,000 like it does today. I wouldn't have played it. Right. So Ron Kohler, uh, son Troy was my setter. Ron Kohler, um, who I still talk to every once in a while, um, owned this major real estate holding company and sponsored two clubs. I mean, uh-huh. I, so that's just luck. And that's just luck. And then, then I get an opportunity to go to UCLA. Uh, so there was a decision there, but that what great fortune to play for a guy like Al. And then just to like having that type of an influence, maybe that's the other part of, of that story is mm-hmm. luck and surrounding yourself with people who are really exceptional. The network that I was able in some fortunate way yeah. to surround myself with uh, and what that led to, you know, great, great teammates. Yeah. A lot of those guys I just listed off are some of my dearest friends. Right. Uh, great mentorship. And that mentorship led to, you know, my relationship with Doug Beal because he was head coach of the national team and being able to go to Colorado Springs and watch how he worked and coached, being in different gyms as a result. And yeah. so that's just, it, it, I, I think, luck and the network combined with the passion. Those are the things that I think about. I just think about how fortunate I have been. Wow. wow. Yeah, that's, that's incredible. Yeah, it's true. I mean, I guess with anything, there's an element of luck that, that plays a role. But I think it's more so what you do with that luck. And I think you took that luck and turned it into something special. And well, I think it's a combination cool. of the two, right? I mean, yeah. you get your breaks, and then what do you do with it? And, yeah, hundred uh, yeah. percent. Um, so, real quick, uh, first point of volleyball. Uh, tell me about that initiative. I'm excited to to get a talk a chance to talk about that because as a men's coach myself, and you know, I do a lot of work with the boys community uh, out here in Toronto. Um, mm-hmm. I can say out here in Toronto, the girls' game dominates versus the boys game in terms of numbers of teams and players etc so it is it's definitely you know the boys they go over here they go around the hockey or basketball route volleyball isn't one of the top three choices or top two choices in their mind um so tell me about first point volleyball and you know what what kind of great work you guys are doing over there yeah so we started with the front end of my career now we're going right to the back end because this is probably the the newest thing that i've been a part of Mm -hmm. um i've known wade gerard who's now our, our ceo for a long time i we go back over 10 years. Um, and so he called me up one day. His, his daughter had come to our camps. We we're fraternity brothers. And, and he says, hey, um, you know, I'm, I'm at this tournament right now with my daughter. And I don't understand why boys volleyball is not bigger. There are thousands of people here for, my, for Mamie's uh, tournament. I, I, where's the boys? Mm-hmm. And I go, oh, and, and this is somebody that I've always appreciated insight from people that have a perspective that's not in our silo. Like I, I love talking to people who are experts in, in other realms. And this was just kind of draw this advice in and, or perspective in. And mm-hmm. he said, I just, I don't, I think we need to talk about how we get the boys game going. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, this is a conversation I'd love to have. We've all been having it as you know, for, for years. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he and I, he came into Southern California and uh, we sat down and kind of talked a little bit about the issues, what have been tried before, um, maybe where some stumbling blocks are. He, he comes from a background of philanthropy. So he's run major foundations before and, and mm-hmm. been a, a really successful fundraiser for, um, for nonprofits. Mm-hmm. And so he came into this view of, Hey, we need to raise philanthropic dollars to get this job done. And nobody had really ever tried that. And I think that's right. I mean, one of the things that I really learned from coach skates, I uh, a lot now, especially at this point is just how ahead of the curve skates was with fundraising. He mm-hmm. saw that men's water polo 
swimming and gymnastics got cut at UCLA in the early nineties. And I, I, I've never talked to him about it, but I think he woke up the next day and was like, I better start racing some money. And he did a really phenomenal job of that. And he taught me um, what I think is really important, especially here in the United States. Uh, I don't think it's, it's important in Canada, but um, if you're an Olympic sport coach, your job is to recruit, teach and raise money. It is just, that is, it is part of your deal. And if you're not comfortable doing that, you better figure out, figure out how to get more comfortable doing it, learn it, or surround yourself with people that can do that. I mean, that's kind of what we do with our own knowledge of our leadership capacity, right? We try and fill our gaps with people around us. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Fundraising is a big, big deal. And I think a lot of people are realizing that now here in this COVID environment um, mm -hmm. and the stresses that are being placed upon finances at Olympic sport level. But, um, but I knew this. I, I was geared that way. Wade had this perspective. And so the first thing we did is we went to Doug Beal, who was CEO of USAID, and said, Doug, listen, we want to understand better. Doug has obviously been a big proponent of the growth of men's volleyball. USA Volleyball had helped grow Division III to, a champ to reach its championship status, but hadn't engaged in any major initiative at the highest levels. So... Went to Doug and Doug commissioned a study. We actually hired Wade to do a study to see if there was enough leadership and capacity to grow the sport from just the boys. I mean, are there people out there interested in this? Like you have to ask some basic fundamental questions to know if your initiative is going to be functional. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so we did this study over the Rio summer. So I was driving north on the five national team. Mm -hmm. And Wade would call me and he says, I need you to call this person, this person, this person. Because at this point, nobody knew who Wade was. Mm -hmm. So I literally spent all summer before, before Rio just calling people and saying, hey, there's this guy, Wade Girard, he's going to call you. <laughs> hey, there's this guy, Wade Girard, he's going to call you. Yeah. And uh, open the door for Wade to just start asking some really fundamental questions about the environment that we were in. Is, would an initiative like this work? Right. And so um, that was a very successful study. The study... He'd done a, over 40 of those types of quantitative, excuse me, quality studies. Mm -hmm. And he, he came out with this result. We presented it to the ABCA. We had this whole group of people we, we presented it to in Chicago, October of that year. And it was, it was a very successful study. The, the, this, there was a lot of people interested in doing this. And, uh, and then it was like, now what? He goes, listen, I've had these interviews. You can't let this sit. For a year or two while people try to figure out what to do you got to go and i'm like oh man well at the time doug was retiring and so i just figured we put uh, some men's volleyball initiative within usav because it's a non-profit you can give money to usav there's right. the usav foundation so most people don't know that there's a foundation involved so i figured that'd probably be the best place have the men have the men's volleyball initiative or something like that Mm -hmm. um, but that was the, the, the foundation of the time was going through some leadership change. So, uh, we were told very directly, go start your own 501 C three. And so we started our own foundation. And so we've been at now for since gosh, December of 16. Okay. And we've raised oh, okay. over $3 million, started 17 programs, added 60 new scholarships, culminated in probably our our most successful gift so far is a million dollar grant that we gave to the SIAC, which is a, a conference of historical colleges. And then they're going to start, they, they've delayed their start because of COVID smart move. And uh, they're going to start next year um, or a year from, from now. So that uh, that's going to, that's 18 
scholarships for, for men of color. So diversifying, growing. That's great. Um, yeah, we have, we have a great website, uh, firstpointvolleyball.org. has a lot of information about how this started, full okay. transparency about where, where uh, donated dollars go. Yep. Uh, has a scorecard for how we're doing, information about our board. We have an incredible board of directors that are mm-hmm. the leaders and the strategic thinkers that we've needed to grow our sport. And uh, so I'm just really thrilled at, at how this has all gone. And honestly, all the He's worked it and uh, done a great job of raising and working and um, advocating for this, the growth of the sport and, right. and helping right. get a board together that can really do that well. So it's uh, Wade's done a phenomenal job. Great. Well, we'll definitely uh, link uh, First Point Volleyball in the show notes so people can access that. Um, that's pretty cool. So kind of, kind of what you mentioned, COVID. Um, that's been a tough situation for coaches and athletes uh, around the world. Um, I'm interested to hearing how you've dealt with it, um, you know, both your family, coaching, athletes, and, and what you recommend for other coaches and players who are, you know, dealing with the gyms being closed, not understanding or knowing where to go to train, or um, what yeah. should they really be doing right now? Whew, what a broad topic. Let's dive into I, it's it. It's tough, um, I know. <laughs> No, I think there's probably a lot of different components of this too. Um, what, what do they do right now? I mean, anything they can. They just have to do the best job they can. I mean, I, I know that, listen, I've got guys like Matt Anderson who are professionals who have the financial resources to build a home gym that's probably as good as anything they can get anywhere. And then I've got guys at UCLA who are home with mom and dad that have no money. And, and so they're not building a home gym. So right. everybody has their own their own circumstances. And I honestly, you just have to do the best job you can with what you have. And I, I think we understand that particularly from the UCLA side that we're going to have to have a significant slow ramp up <laughs> to, to get to the point where we can play. And I, I just, I don't think people are thinking about some of these details as well as they should be as they're trying to plan for a return to play. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm even looking at, at what is trying to, what they're trying to do right now at the NC2A, I talked to a football coach at UCLA. He goes, we can't even get through a walkthrough. They're talking about playing in, in, in six weeks. Uh, I'd be sketched out if I was a coach. I mean, I know for USA, when we started training back, mm-hmm. we've been doing it for now seven, eight weeks. Um, we had an eight-week ramp-up plan. And so the jump count, swing count, lifting programs specified for the, the, the idea that a lot of these guys weren't going to be doing as much as they need to and if you think about the the collegiate crowd it's easy so you know you're gonna need eight weeks um so how do you carefully bring your athletes back who have been doing something other than jumping in a long time i mean as you know brian i know you're really uh, you have a very good technical understanding of jump uh, mm-hmm. the jump and it, you know your muscles are going to come back they're going to come back quicker you're um Obviously, your, your neuropathways and all the myelin you've laid, I mean, that's going to come back pretty quick. It's the stress on your tendons that is going to take a significant amount of time. And I, I hope that coaches understand that um, as they're, they're getting into their return to play protocols. Um, the, the stress on the tendons, the ability to, to increase levels of tendonitis and injury is, is really, really high right now. So, you know, how we bring those athletes back is really important. And the athletes probably, if they have the ability to get out there and even start jumping a little bit, it would be really beneficial. It's about that tendon work. And making sure you're being smart with how you're, you're training. You know, are you, it's real easy when you're sitting at home, oh, I'm going to go outside for a run. You know, like, 
that's no good if you're a volleyball player. So, right. so you, you got to understand a little bit about the, the, uh, the biochemistry of, of how your body works and, and what, right. what, uh, what, what energy cycle you need to be in. And, um, and, you know, I don't know that all those athletes have that understanding. So coaches need to and, and disseminate that information. Right. Uh, so I want, let's, let's talk to the athlete for a sec. Um, a question I get a lot uh, as a college coach is, uh, I want us to kind of take, take the athlete through a journey from being a high school player to what they need to do in order to have a shot at making a varsity team, a collegiate team, to then potentially going to pro and then potentially going to national. What does that success path look like? I know it's a really broad question, but if you were, if you were going to help an athlete, how would you guide them through getting, uh, creating a path to get to that success? That's a really, really good question. I think the paths have been different so far. Uh, there, there are different journeys and there's no one journey that's, that's culminated in a national team opportunity or an Olympic experience. Mm -hmm. so it's important to understand that because just because you don't do it one way that I, I may profess in this moment right here on this podcast, that this is an ideal way to do it. Mm -hmm. That doesn't preclude somebody from doing it differently. Mm -hmm. For sure. Uh, and we've had a lot of those guys. I mean, I, I, I talk about Riley Salmon a lot. I mean, listen, that guy didn't go play traditional division one, non-traditional state. I mean, he came from Houston, Texas. He's playing beach volleyball events in, in those, you know, like the bars, you know, that they have with those volley sand volleyball courts. Oh, yeah. Back, you know? yeah, yeah. He's playing in the boat leagues, which probably helped him. But I, he had a lot of love for the game, and he played a lot of, of adult leagues, kid, guys that were older. I mean, he probably accelerated his career a little bit there. But, I mean, his journey was just it, – that is – that's a podcast guest you should probably have. So there, there's other ways to do it. Uh, you have guys like Clay Stanley, who – who I coached on the World University Games team in 1999. And we gave him, I know, um, we talked about this, Skates and I gave him five swings. And we would start him at one of the pin positions, and he wasn't always opposite. And, hmm. and we'd say, okay, you get five swings. Because Clay was either going to be hitting 800 or he was going to be negative. And, it, and you just, he, his inconsistency was so dramatic. And so then we had Andy Witt or Gabe Gardner on the bench, and we would just stick one of them in at that spot, and away we'd go. Right. Um, so, uh, and then even his junior year in high in college, he, when we played him in the playoffs, Clay wasn't starting, you know, this is junior year in college. So of course he came off the bench, and lit us up, but I, I, you know, I think there's, there's just these, there's this, these little stories that come out that say, okay, there's, there's other ways. So I, I really want to make sure that your listeners, they're young kids, uh, potentially, and they understand that there's a lot of different ways to do this. Um, if you were to design it, it would look a little different than maybe Riley's. Um, I think it'd be a little bit more of uh, developmental pathways that are created um, by USA Volleyball. Um, they are evaluation opportunities to see which kids have the potential to, to potential to be a national team athlete someday. And this is where some of your young listeners may not have total control over their opportunity. The mm -hmm. reality is, and I, I mean, I, I'm a perfect example. Like I knew when I graduated college, I was not a national team though. Like part I, I knew, and I knew because of that, I wasn't going to be a professional athlete. Like it's just was really difficult to do. Mm -hmm. I didn't, I wasn't, I wasn't tall enough. Uh, I had a pretty decent jump, but my arm was rangy, but not real heavy. 
Mm-hmm. I had a real good wrist, but I, I did not have a good heavy arm. I wasn't jump serving. I, I looked, I got to the end of my career and I was like, I'm done. And I, I think in some respects it was better because I, I see these guys like Mike Seeley was a little bit like this. He went and played overseas, came back. I think I'm the coach. He was the volunteer assistant coach. So he and I sat next to each other a lot on the bench. And then he was like, ah, he's watching what's going on in the court. He goes, I got to go play. <laughs> so these guys bounce, right? Or right. they have a lot of angst while they're coaching that where they still feel like they, they didn't accomplish everything they wanted to accomplish or they, they're not, they feel like maybe they can go do it a little bit better and it gives them some stress. Man, I never had that, ever. I, I knew the day that last ball dropped, I was out. And um, I tried to get overseas, and had, but I was never like – this is what I'm doing, or this is a, a pathway because it didn't exist. And I was just like, okay, if I have an opportunity, great. But it didn't come my way. And I started coaching and I was totally at peace with that. Um, mm-hmm. Some of your young players that are listening, you know, that they're not going to be six foot, whatever. They're not yeah. going to have a, a huge jump. They're not going to have the heavy arm. There is a physical aspect of this game at the highest levels, which you can't deny. And uh, that's part of the evaluation process that we need to understand better at a younger age. Like uh, even me doing this for as many years, we talk about this as a staff at UCLA. Like I would like to track velocities, jump serve velocities at 15, 16, 17. And what does that mean to somebody who's 26? Mm-hmm. We have no longitudinal studies of, of arm speed development and yet serving is like the number one thing. And yeah. so, um, you know, like if we look at a 15 year old hitting the ball 50 miles an hour, is that good? And is there any differentiation? Who? How? I don't think we understand those things. Right. So, um, so I think uh, there are some realities in terms of the the physical nature of our game. Now, that being said, the the question is, and I think the ultimate question for everybody is, how do you maximize your potential? This isn't just a UCLA coach. Because sorry, can you say that again? Your audio broke up. How do you? It's about how you maximize your potential. Right. Right, and and I and I'm a I'm a UCLA guy, so I'm I'm due for a wooden quote. But I mean, you know, it, it's your success is doing the best job, of how to make yourself the best you possibly can be, right? And mm-hmm. um, and so I, I think everybody needs to understand that that's the goal, and um, and so I think that's especially with, with with understanding the game, ball control. Let's go back to understanding the game real quick. When yeah. I was growing up, I couldn't like pull up a YouTube clip and watch all these guys. And yep. you know, now young players can watch international volleyball and flow volleyball. They can watch international matches. Um, I'm sure a lot of coaches have access to huddle matches and national team matches. You can go on YouTube and get all these clips. Even yep. last week, last year when I was working with Mads, our setter from Denmark, mm-hmm. you know, he's got some interesting technical things. Tall setters are an interesting issue, period. And um, so – I was like, Maz, let's, let's look up Gianelli from Italy. He's a tall setter. Let's see what, how he's handling some of these things. Pop right up YouTube. We're watching slow clips of his hands. Yeah. He's like, this, and, which was kind of funny. He goes, this is great. I'm like, Maz, you've never done this? Like, so the young kids yeah. today yeah. have the capacity to procure information and watch the next level. Like a lot of kids have had in different sports for a long time. If you're playing football, baseball, you're in high school, you can watch the NBA, you can watch the bigs. You can, you can, you can see everybody at the highest levels and emulate what they're doing. Now you can do that. Um, two is I think there is a ball control component that everybody can, can improve on. Mm -hmm. Uh, I know for me, just philosophically, like I think setting is everybody's has to set. Everybody has to set. I spend 
a really inordinate amount of time, probably more than any coach I've ever been around teaching on setter setting, um, training it in practices. And, uh, so I, you know, there's that, that ball control component, the passing. I just think that small group work is just underutilized. I, I, I don't know. I just, I think that ball control component is super important, but I, I think as we train, I think as you look at that, I, I think those are really critical components. I, I think the coaching is really important too. I, I, if you're looking at developing some sort of a pipeline, you also have to understand that the beginning, the, the, the funnel at the top end mm-hmm. is about the 12, 13, 14 year old kids who are there to have fun. So what is your, as a coach, what is your uh, curriculum for fun? If you're coaching a 12, 13, 14, maybe even a 15 year old kid, shoot, I, let's be honest, it better be fun even when I'm coaching the national team. There has to be a fun element. But it's got to be really major fun. On the it's fun. actually, sorry to cut you off. It's funny because when I do younger kids, the first yeah. thing I teach them how to do is hit. Right. Just, just to let them see how much, how fun it is. Yeah. So John, I, Kessel, I agree. John Kessel at USAV has been a long time proponent of this. Eric Sullivan, we were talking the other day and uh, he was like, I don't understand why we don't play on really, really low nets. Like why not let young kids like really hit like they yeah. see? Yeah. Uh, I think it's a phenomenal concept. Uh, I agree. I, I think the fun thing though is really critical. And, you know, I don't know that I think there's, and Kessel actually talked about this in a coaching, uh, actually it was a high performance conversation like this, a coaching education conversation. And he was talking about these co-curricular pathways, you know, where you have coaches who are taking classes and taking coaching education that's specifically designed to be young in the game. How do, you, how do you first teach them? How much fun are you having? What, what do they enjoy? How do we keep this funnel going? I can't remember the percentage, but some astronomical number of, of kids stop playing organized sports by the time they're 12 because they've had some crappy coach who is, isn't, doesn't understand what level they're at. Right. And I think uh, that's just really, really important to acknowledge. And then, there, and then there's the, okay, so then they get a little bit older. They have some height, some arm speed, some jumping ability. They look like they might have potential. Again, the funnel's pretty big. How do you, what does it look like then? And I think that's a fascinating conversation that a lot of people are still having. But what does yeah. what the, the coaching curriculum look like? How, how vertical is that educational philosophy uh, all the way up to the national team? What, what are those components that are going to be, what are those principles that are going to be consistent even if the national coach changes over the course time? Um, and, then, and then, of course, how, how often... What's the structure? How do you get these guys together? What coaches do you use? How are you training them? What are the systems in, in, in terms of disseminating that information? Um, what's your budget? You know, I mean, yeah. there's, a, there's a lot of those conversations, Brian, that are the realities of the boots on the ground. Hey, how do you actually execute on a plan like that? And uh, I think those are all really great conversations to get a lot of smart people in the room and start talking about it. Yeah. But that's what, it, to me, if you're, okay, some young players listening right now and they're like how do i get on the national team i i I'd play a lot of doubles and triples and and fours i just play and i get out there and watch a lot of the 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 players that are on the national team and, and collegiately at the next level up i'd watch a lot it's accessible to you now and i just go play and and really focus on the the passing and the setting because the physical side that can come later you know if you're going to mm-hmm. If you're going to be an outside hitter and you're going to be six five plus, and you're going to have a big jump and a big arm, the physical side will take care of it to some degree. What's interesting to me is that even at the national team level, some of the most physical guys 
Mm-hmm. Still don't have the ability to shot, kill the ball in lots of different ways, off speed, mm-hmm. joust at the net. How's that ball being killed? You know who kills that thing is the Riley Salmons of the world who are six foot four, grew up a little bit smaller and had to kill that ball their whole way. Mm-hmm. Guys like Matt Anderson takes him a long time to learn that aspect of the game at the older ages because he's been touching 12 whatever since he was young and yeah. just kept going over the block and never was challenged in that particular way. So, yeah. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's kind of transition to one of your favorite topics. It's one of mine too. Uh, teaching instruction and feedback. And mm-hmm. I think like for coaches listening to this, this is huge because you can have so much in your mind, so much knowledge, but if you don't know how to effectively deliver that to your athletes, it's useless. Mm-hmm. And I think that... Uh, this is a little bit of my teaching background coming into this, but there's a concept we use called differentiated instruction. And differentiated instruction is basically catering to multiple different learning styles because right. athletes don't all learn the same way. You may have kinesthetic learners. You may have auditory learners. You may have visual learners. So what we try to do in our gym is if we're going over new concepts for the first time, um, I actually mic myself up so it's being recorded. I teach it. We go through it. I then make it available on video for my athletes to go back and watch so they can get that other component. So they're getting a little bit of differentiated instruction there. We have visuals that go along with that instruction. Now, I, I coach at, a, at a, uh, one of the big colleges in Canada where we have a lot of international students. So mm-hmm. our team is composed of some player. Like we had a kid this year who didn't know how to speak English. Yeah. So it was really important for him to not only like listen and practice and try to get what he could, but go back and watch it again. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we actually, um, this might, I don't know if you've ever heard of a software called Searchy. Searchy is a software that imagine this, you know, um, imagine watching a two hour video and you want, you don't want to watch two hours. You want to go in that two hour video and find exactly where the coach was talking about a specific subject. So Searchy, you can type in keywords and it will find those keywords in that exact moment in the video where you were talking about it. Got it. So this entire, like this entire interview right now, if I was to go back, if I upload this into Sergi, I can go back and I can type in Matt Anderson and it will take you into that exact moment in the video where you were talking about Matt Anderson, you press play and it goes from there. So mm-hmm. all that extra wasted time now that you would have already, it would have happened if two hours just diminishes. So mm-hmm. we, we're, we're big on this like differentiating instruction model and how to, um, you know, just how to deliver a particular lesson in multiple different ways. Um, so I want to know kind of what, what your thoughts are uh, on, you know, instruction just in general and how you deliver that in your gyms. Well, we, we are differentiated too. I, I know that uh, probably not as well as you do. It sounds like you have some higher level of education in that area, but I definitely am aware. We can talk, don't worry. I'll give yeah, you all my yeah. stuff. stuff. Um, I definitely am aware of the different learning styles and um, even, even beyond that, just there's some aspect of your athletes that are ADD too, you know, so it doesn't oh, right. matter how they're learning, but how long they can learn in that mode. And that's right. And that's so, right. Um, so, I mean, obviously we go through practice plan design, so it's written and then we explain it and then we demo it. And then we, hopefully for the first time, the idea, this is where the argument for having less drills does resonate with me a little bit, although I'm a constant drill tinkerer. So sorry, sorry, John, sorry, can you John, repeat that? The audio the broke audio. up a bit. Yeah, sorry about that. Um, right. Yeah, I, uh, I'm a drill tinkerer. So I, I, I know that it's beneficial to have probably a smaller number of drills where your athletes know, I know what this is. Uh, but I, I tinker quite a bit. 
Um, but uh, I think um, from a, a feedback perspective, I'll just say that I think you're, you're dead on. And I gave a, a talk at the ABCA convention last year on feedback because I, I met this, um, I met this PhD student at UNLV, Harjib Singh. And Harjib is uh, getting his PhD in motor learning, but it's a real area of focus with feedback. How, how does feedback impact learning? And so he was telling me a little bit about this. Like, Gosh, this is... Sorry, John, you're sorry, breaking John, up again. I'm so sorry about my in-laws place in Montana. Maybe I'm not getting great signal. Um, if I go outside here, my kids are going to be running around, but let me try. Hold on. Um, uh, so, you know, I think um, if my kids get too loud in the background, I apologize. We can, ah, that's okay. That's can, okay. Don't worry about it. You can move again. You can hear them up above. Um, but uh, I, I think he started talking. Well, the interesting thing about coaching, there's so many different facets of it, right? Like, I remember I, I grew up when I was a, a young coach, and um, young coach, especially of a program with a smaller budget, you have to you have to know marketing, you have to know recruiting, yes, so you gotta have yes. some experience in sales. You have to know motor learning. You have to so the the, the broad range of you have to know budget management. You gotta know fundraising now. You have to know all these things. And and listen, I don't know about what a lot of people do in the business world, but I just think that that range of knowledge is real broad. And I think as a coach, that's a real challenge for all of us. And one of these areas that is interesting to me is feedback. So um, I'm aware that my feedback has changed over the course of time. And that is because I had a broader range of experiences. I see more, I understand more, I've watched more video, all that stuff. So has my amount of feedback increased? I'll, I'll see. The other thing that's happened that I've been aware of too is when I was 30 years old at UC Irvine, when I got my first job, everybody knew I was a assistant coach. I didn't have any cachet. I had never been a head coach before. I was 30 years old. Nobody was intimidated. Now I'm a little bit older and I'm the national team coach. I've won some championships. You know, I have a reputation and now young kids interact with me differently. Um, I have a different relationship with them and I think that impacts feedback. So knowing that there's just been this environmental change over the course of time, um, I've become much more interested in the academic understanding of feedback and how I can do a better job of that under my current cir circumstances. So I'm, I'm not here on this podcast to say that I've learned it all because I have not. I, I think I'm in the process right now of trying to become some better understandings of how I deliver information. But I will say that, that that thought process is something that needs to be preeminent in every coach's mind, which is not the drill. It's how you use it. It can be a little bit of the drill. Volume. What are you working on today? Are you getting done what you think you need to get done? Are you really effectively making progress in the areas we missed? Maybe you want to work on your areas of strength. But these decisions, practice plan design, are always interesting. We always want more serve and pass. More serve and pass is slower practice, less volume. What's, what's, so these, these things are always being discussed, right? But I think from a feedback perspective, how you're utilizing your drill is much more important. Um, how you deliver information. Uh, I, I just think that that area is, is a super fascinating area of study. And obviously, like you mentioned, it needs to be with the understanding that each of your, our athletes are different. Right. 
Yeah, it's funny. And with technology nowadays, like I, I just got on this, uh, the, the new software called Searchy, which is, which is what I'm sharing with you because it's, fa- it's a fairly new technology. The fact that you can go and search in video to an exact moment in time is pretty incredible. It can, I can only imagine how much more technology will help us with feedback because I'm just like you. I'm always trying to figure out a way to give constructive feedback that, um, and not too much of it too because too much can hurt. So what, like, what's, what's right. the right oh, balance? Yeah. Right? Like, oh, what's the right I mean, balance? So, I think too it, much is probably the more common issue. Probably is. Yeah. I mean, that's what I'm concerned about personally. Like, getting back to this, hey, I've, I've experienced more. Am I talking more than I used to because I know more? Um, I think coaches want to make a difference. Yeah. How do you yeah. make a difference? And does that mean verbally? Or is it better with dual construction? Um, how do you use, I think technology is a really, I think it's an impactor, but we don't know exactly how, I mean, I've been on some meetings recently on zoom, you know, trying to mm-hmm. understand a little bit more about this. And I've had some, the ability, the nice part is about the national team is it does give me some access to some of the elite experts in the sport. Mm-hmm. So, um, in the sports world. So just even having some conversations recently with people who are the world's experts and like pattern recognition, perception, you know, how do you use video? Now we're all talking about VR is maybe the next thing and, and how is that going to, is that going to really make a difference? Does point of perspective, you know, make a difference in terms of an elite athlete's ability to process that information and effectively make change? And I, there's, there's literally, I don't think they know. And, uh, and so it is, uh, it is interesting to, to, to listen to that aspect of, of feedback. I do think video has a real, a real place in it. And, um, and I think the other day, sometimes I, uh, I asked this of, of this expert recently. I said, okay, so you have a stimuli, a rep. Okay, so something happens. Is it better to be reflective in that moment to better understand pattern recognition um, is there feedback involved there or is it better to just have reps, 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 and volume, you know, and yeah. there's a, there's a pretty strong argument that volume might be more important than feedback. And so, you know, I think, um, it's something I'm, I'm spending a lot of time thinking about in terms of practice plan design. Right. You know, to kind of talk about your practice plan design. So I'm going to share with you a little story of clarity that you gave me. I mean, I've never actually told you this and then I'll, I'll it'll lead into my question, but so was it two, the last time I was in your gym, um, you were doing a passing drill and I was just observing your passing drill. I, I saw the, I saw that you had, you know, the player who's responsible for going in that drill. You have your whole practice plan design drawn out. And I was blown away by how efficient that drill was. It was timed. It was calculated. There was, it, there was a purpose. And in that moment, I got so much clarity on how on, on drill design on efficiency. And that same night I went back on and I, and I talked to our, our coaches um, back in Toronto about what I observed. And we had an aha moment. We're like, mm. why have we not been designing our drills with maximum efficiency in mind? Mm. And in that moment, it sh- I went back to Toronto and I changed all my practice plans for the rest of the season. Mm. And our results increased significantly. So first of all, thank you for that. <laughs> sure. That was incredible. That moment of clarity was incredible. And it changed my perception of, of coaching it to an extent. So let's, um, what are some tips 
or a piece of advice that you can give coaches when they're designing drills, when they're planning a practice, maybe one or two or three points that you, you must have, you know, when putting together a practice for their team. Boy, <clears throat> I think you have to know, have an understanding of what you want to achieve. I think I mentioned that before. Like, I think that yeah. seems really basic. Um, some of my best um, blocks of training have been when I'm aware of, hey, these are maybe the five things I want to achieve. Uh, it, it becomes really, my own practice plan design becomes a little bit more, I don't want to say strategic because it is both with UCLA and with USA, but at USA, you'll have this competition and, and you go all the way through VNL and you've never really had a chance to train. So sometimes guys come back, sometimes they meet you at the first stop, you know, and it's like, hey, good to see you. Hug it out. Let's go play. <laughs> you know, it's crazy. Yeah. And, uh, um, and then you come back. So you get into like middle, late July and you're having your first real practice. And then you maybe you have like, like last year, you had three weeks and then you got the Olympic qualifier. Like, what do you need to do in those three weeks? And you have X number of practices and you better figure out how you get better because it's the Olympic qualifier. Like you have that type of urgency and right. structure. And then you get back from the Olympic qualifier and then you've got five weeks before the World Cup. So what do you want to do in those five weeks? And I think the organized blocks of practices that I've had have been the ones that, first of all, I spent a lot of time thinking about um, and saying, okay, here are five things. Like, and they, they aren't just areas of weakness. They're also, okay, where are we our best? What is the best thing that we do? How do we keep doing that? Like, so maybe two of the five are like, this is where we're really great and we don't want to lose it. And then you go through your areas of weakness or um, maybe you want to really your trans numbers really bad. about the right drills for those trans. And then how many reps are we getting that a day? And how much video are we getting? And how, and how much are we meeting with players so that they can watch this video? Um, I think those are the practice. Those are the ones that really, I think, have been the best. Um, it's interesting. Even, uh, this just happened this week. I was looking at some new statistics that Nate Go, our, our technical director, has in terms of trying to evaluate practice efficacy. Okay, so this is this isn't you and I. You're asking me about this, and I'm I'm glad you saw that we had a good practice at UCLA, and it, it affected you know what you were doing. I think um, you need to know that from my perspective, it is still a quest. Like I, I still am trying to figure this out better for what how we're doing it. Like you're saying it was efficient. Like, I think I can be more efficient. Like I, right. I'm fascinated by how coaches get in more serve and pass during a practice. Like, how do you do that? Because invariably you look at a practice plan and you look at the stats at the end of the day, you have access to that. And, yeah. and gosh, you think to yourself, gosh, could we get more serving in? Could we get more live serving? In? Could we get more live passing? in? And then you get into those practices and then, so then, you know, what's your balance between the need of reps for a particular stimuli, say transition or blocking or all these things, but then you got to get certain passing, which immediately is like the breaks on any fast practice. Right. Yeah. Those, that maybe that's the most important thing you need to do. So I think there's a lot of that balance and a lot of that is, is variance too. I think uh, just like I'm talking about, maybe you need more serve and pass. So then you're, Hey guys, this practice is going to be a little bit slower. We're going to try and simulate it like this. We're going to, we're going to have extra guys on the end line. We're going to try and keep pace going to increase rep per time because i think that is important 
I think you know, you know they always say. Sorry, can you repeat that one more time? You broke up a little bit there. The rep. Yeah, rep for time. You know, I, I think that is important. I think from a motor learning perspective, from what I've understood, I haven't looked at it recently, but you've got about a two-hour window. There's effective motor learning going on. So how many reps can you get in that period of time? I think that's really an important aspect of it. Yeah. Um, fascinated by coaches that do that in varieties of ways. But I, I think uh, sometimes you look at the stats at the end of the day and all of a sudden your practices, you, you, haven't, you haven't served that much. And you think, okay, well, that's the multiple thing. So, yeah, my kid, sorry, my wife's shut the door. Hopefully that's that all right. So, uh, so uh, you know, I, I think this is practice efficiency, understanding what you want to do, evaluating is that is that actually what you did. Yes. And it being yeah. – I think being real specific, I think I, I suffer from this too. Like, hey, I really want to work on this aspect of our offense today. How do I go about breaking that down? Sometimes the national team, you know, sometimes the you do. Even the national team, sometimes you realize, hey, we got to go back and break this down. Like, that's still quite So there's, there's this. And then once you get it, how much do you go to small groups? Do you go to full area? And then I see some of the regions terrible blocking movement. Oh, well, Max, you, what do you, how about this? Next thing you know, you know, like I've gotten, you know, then there's this dig and there's a serve and I'm blah, 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 you know, what happened to the area of focus and have they shown enough um, improvement in that area for us to be patient? Because this is another area where I suffer because I just want to keep moving, you know, and, but have they really, really gotten that? And, and how much time and patience and specificity do we have in that one particular area? And I think that's, that's always a challenge for me, and I think it is for coaches. Right. right. And it's, it's interesting. Like efficiency, practice planning, like efficiency is actually one of, uh, as a coaching staff, it's one of our number one priorities. If we have a list of goals every season mm-hmm. and efficiency is always up there on how to be a more efficient coach, how to run a more efficient practice. And it's a journey, like you said. Uh, and I think every year we learn more, we reflect, we learn more, we learn more. And, and, and hopefully, I don't think we'll ever be perfect, but every year, if you continue to make that an objective, a goal, um, you sh- you'll be getting better. And one thing that we don't, one word we don't allow in our gym is failure. Like losing the ideal of failure. Um, nothing's a failure. It's learning. Everything is learning. So that's how we approach efficiency, practice. Everything's a learning experience. Even when we lose a game, it's, we didn't lose. What did we learn from this game? Um, sure. and kind of and kind of go forward from that okay i won't keep you too much longer one last thing because i know we're talking for about an hour um an interesting question i got from our coaching community actually that i've never gotten before i don't know if you've ever gotten this question before but the question was managing referees oh yeah managing I don't referees. Know I, you're right brian i don't know that i've ever gotten that question but it's a good one right and uh and i, I was thinking back to my practice that like, it's funny we i've i've actually i've never been red carded before Mm. Um, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Um, yeah, I have had a couple of yellows, but um, I don't, you know what? This is let's hear how you deal with referees and manage referees, and I'll kind of give you my perspective and, and see because I, I think actually no, let's just let's just hear you. Go ahead. Uh, I don't know if I want to give away the secrets. You know, it is a good one. <laughs> um, I have gotten red cards. I've done it intentionally. Uh, I did it intentionally at the World Cup last year. Interesting. Um, so how to man I, I think ultimately it comes down to this. I think if you um if you're on them all the time, you're never gonna get anything. Yeah. You know, like 
I remember one time I've been known to not really say much. Even when I, even when I got my red card last year at the World Cup, I had two referees because you know you have all these national referees. At yep. Yep. I had two referees that came up to me and said, "John, are you okay?" <laughs> like two of them. Are you okay? I've never seen you like that before. And uh, because even now internationally, which takes a while, because you know. Get to go all over the world and do all these to get to all these guys, but all the referees now know that I'm not a yeller. Like I, I don't get on them. And uh, if they're hearing from me, it's got probably a problem. And so, right, right. I think that uh, I've developed some level level of credibility with referees because I'm not a whiner and I don't bitch about every little thing. Right. And um, and I think that that's been proven effective. Um, if there is a problem, one of, <laughs> one of my favorite things to do, and again, I've never talked about this, but one of my favorite <laughs> things to do is to keep complaining either when the opponent has it happen to them or it's the subsequent point. So okay. sometimes if it really bothers me, it, I will, the next play happens and I'll stand up and I'll keep complaining about the next <laughs> point. And that's when I've actually, one time I remember, um, there's a couple stories here. Like, I remember something happened to us. I do this. I not fairly frequently because the circumstances don't happen frequently, but it happens like this all the time. That is, if, they, if I get called on a transgression that I don't agree with, and then they call it on the next guy, I'll stand up and complain that they're calling it on our opponents. Oh, like, wow. Hey, stop it. And then I'll say, like, hey, you've done it once to us. You've done it once to them. Don't do that anymore. Like, I'll yell that. Yeah, 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 that's always effective. Um, the the other thing is, I, I a transgression will occur, and then um, I'll argue it, and then the next play happens, and I'll get up and I'll keep arguing, and that either perturbs them a little bit, or sometimes I've even got in the middle of a match. I don't need guys listening. Oh wow! <laughs> and okay. Like, and then as soon as that happens, I go, "That's cool," you know, like. Uh, you know, uh, if you, I get it. Like, uh, shoot, I make plenty of mistakes, right? So, yeah. um, so I do. I do think there's there's some level of of, of that. I, so those are a couple of, of my moves. I think humor. We haven't really yeah. talked about humor. I think yeah. we talked yeah. a little bit about fun with with athletes. I think Coach Skates, and I've talked about this before on other interviews, is it, really one of the funnier people that, that I have in my life. He's got an incredible sense of humor and we knew it as athletes. Like he, he's hilarious with his yeah. teams. And I think we learned from a young age that you can have fun and win. And I, I firmly still believe that. And we have a good time in the gyms that I coach and it's because I probably steal a lot of jokes from skates and, uh, and, and I think you can have some fun with the refs too. You know, like uh, now that I have to start wearing glasses, uh, you know, I, I, even like Rick Olmstead, one of the things that skates used to do with Rick is if he blew a call, he'd take off his glasses and he'd like, Hey, you, want my glasses? you know, like, <laughs> yeah. so now I did that to Rick, like last year, I've only started wearing him recently. And, uh, he just thought that was hilarious, you know, cause he hadn't seen that since the skates days. Cause I remembered the old joke, but, uh, yeah, I think, uh, I think humor and understanding and, and uh, I think there's times to put your foot down. I put yeah. my I put my foot down a couple times internationally. Um, I don't put my foot down too often at UCLA. I just there's some sometimes there's and, and the, the problem is is that there's really 
there's too many rules. You know, yeah. I think we, we need to be cautious of like the double contact drives me out of my mind. And I think honestly, like even the overcall, like half the time, we all know that the overcall probably isn't called accurately uh, yeah. a really significant percentage of the time. And I tell you what, if there's a new volleyball fan that's watching that match, they have no idea what happened. And that's a problem. Yeah. The double contact, you could probably explain it to them. But the over thing, I, we ought to get away from over. Yep. You should be able to just, if you can grab the ball, you should be able to grab it. Um, yep. But uh, yeah, I, yeah, that's how a little bit yeah. of. Brief. It's interesting that the double contact. So it's funny. I, I, well, I mean, I don't know how it is in, in the US, but in Toronto, like every, every ref is somewhat different with the double contact. Some refs will be more lenient, some refs will be more sure. strict. So anytime I always have an issue with the ref with the double contact, after, after the match or at a timeout, I'll have my setter go over to the ref and really, from a, and I, these, are the, these are his words. I say, go over to him and say, from a position of humility, can you please tell me why I got called on a double contact or what are you looking for when you make that call? Because what it does is one, you get to hear why the ref called a double in the first place. And two, now the ref knows that you're making sure to fix what he thought was potentially incorrect. So mm -hmm. we found he was less likely to call it. And it, every time it happened after we did that, I think, I don't think he called us on a double contact for the rest of the match Yeah, because we, and I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but we, we use right. that approach. And it was interesting. It, it was just, again, kind of like what you said, there, there are people that make mistakes, but you have that, have an open conversation with them. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, it, it worked out in our favor well, and, and yeah. for those matches. But it's an interesting. I, it's, I, you know, when, when someone asked me managing referees, I was like, wow, that's an interesting topic. I'll definitely uh, mm -hmm. I'll bring it up. <laughs> yeah. And everybody, it's just a little different each time. And, you know, you have your good days and bad days too, you know? Yeah, 100%. Um, and, then, and, then some, and then some referees are just, that's not, I'm not going to be specific about it, but I mean, yeah, like, yeah. there's some referees internationally where you just got to wonder if there's some politics involved, like legitimate, like geopolitical politics going on there. Like, is this guy from this country? How does he feel about Americans? Like, I'm starting to get a sense that there's not a lot of love there, you know? And, and right. I, you know, so that's, uh, yeah, there's, there's always the, the story, individual storylines. Yeah. Wow. Well, listen, John, thanks so much for your time, man. I appreciate it. I know you're on vacation with the family, so I really do appreciate you taking your time out to have a chat with volleyball. Uh, it was great. So first point volleyball, we'll definitely link it up in the show notes so people can go to there, get more inf information about that. Um, yeah. Anything else? Any final words you want to say to no, our listeners? Listen, I, I, I uh, enjoy this conversation, Brian. I've enjoyed all our conversations over the years and uh, um, happy to be here even on vacation. I still am working. <laughs> we, uh, I'm so sorry, man. No, 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 no. Listen, it's great. I, I am. I'm working all day today. Uh, part of, uh, listen, we, we kind of just glanced over uh, what could have been an entire show about how to manage COVID and athletes and circumstances and where we go next and all that. Um, we, we did have a couple um, positive tests when we were training with the national team. And, and so we ended the summer. A lot of guys are now going overseas anyway. So mm. my in-laws are up in Montana. And so we decided just to, I got my, my negative, thankfully negative test after that. And uh, oh, good decide to head out a little bit early. So we're here. I'm still working. Uh, I have a beautiful view of Flathead Lake. So it's a nice change of scenery. And so we're very fortunate, especially in this moment in history to uh, get a little support from the in-laws with the kids. I've got a three and four year old. So my yeah, mother-in-law yeah. is really a, a big figure in our, in our uh, kids' lives. And so we wanted to get up here and, um, and spend a little time and it allows me to focus and have these great conversations. And I appreciate uh, what you're doing. I think uh, the more we get, 
information and podcasts and videos about our sport, the better it grows. And uh, yeah, certainly yeah. I appreciate this, the, uh, the link to first point, cause obviously we're sharing the same mission. We're yeah. doing it through first point. You're doing it through your information and YouTube clips and Instagram and all that. And mm-hmm. um, so I'm happy to be here and look forward to a further conversation. Oh, without a doubt. I appreciate it. Thanks a lot. All right. Cue the music. Look, are you at the stage you want to be in your volleyball journey? How would it feel to get clarity on your training? And instead of taking months to get better, you could improve in weeks, if not days. When I was a young coach and player, I felt this way all the time. The truth is, after I got some great advice on how to be efficient, my learning curve grew exponentially. Let me show you how to be more efficient and effective in this game. I invite you to check out CoachBtraining.com for more resources that you can use to take your game to the next level. I look forward to helping you reach your volleyball goals.